Okay, thank you. Praise the Lord. This is wonderful to be able to teach the Word again back to back. Um, any um, miniature of the Gospel loves opportunities like this. And then to come back this evening. And just to let you know this evening, um, the topic is, I don't know if it had been announced, is uh, really a praying people. So I want to encourage you to come back. We will talk about prayer, the importance of prayer, and your role in prayer, and how we must be a praying church. So I look forward to interacting with you um, this evening on that. And if, if you can look ahead. We're going to, our main passage is going to be Colossians um, chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, and a number of other things that we'll interact with when it comes to prayer. Now, the message... Uh, Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, if you turn there with me. Uh, enjoyed earlier our time thinking about um, God's forgiveness. And this message, in one sense, is a complement to that reality. We see um, in Isaiah that he is a God of comfort. And we studied earlier that he was a God of forgiveness. And obviously one of the most um, comforting things a person can experience is that they have been forgiven. Now, what I want to do in Isaiah 40, looking at my time here, um, is I'm going to read through Isaiah 40. It's such a great passage. It really is. 31 verses, but I think it would help us see a flow of thought. Then we're going to work our way through it. And just to let you know how we're going to go about it, in verses 1 and 2, uh, our main verses. And once we understand what it means that God says he's going to comfort his people, or calls for their comfort, we're going to walk through the rest of the chapter to prove the fact that God will keep his word. God says he's going to comfort them. How do you know that he will? How do you know that God will come through? How do you know that he will fulfill his promise? Then what we're going to do is really build the argument that God is capable and willing to comfort his people, even when they don't deserve it because of who he is. So let's just look at this together. Um, verse 1, Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rugged terrain be a broad place. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh is spoken. A voice calls out, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The flower withers, the flower, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. 
say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, Yahweh God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his rewards are with him, and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom and will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in, his, in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth and weighed the, the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of Yahweh or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman cast it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman, to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not be, been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and, it is, <clears throat> and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I will be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired, they will walk and not become weary. Amen? Amen. Pray with me for a moment. Lord, thank you for these great words, comforting words. 
very lofty words, but more than words, these are words of life. Uh, these are eternal truths. Uh, these are words that give us direction and instruction. These are words that give us a picture of who you are and your faithfulness. Help me in these moments ahead to preach to these dear people. Give them ears to hear and a will to respond. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. The God of comfort. This is what we see um, in Isaiah 40, that God is a God that comforts. But when we think about him comforting his people, we have to understand that his people are not a deserving people. Um, Judah, taken away by the Babylonians because they have sinned against the Lord. We talked earlier about God's unbreachable covenant, but yet Judah has committed covenant treachery. That is, God has been faithful. He has provided for them over century after century, but yet they still want the things of the world. They still, in one sense, want to be like the nations. They still want to follow the false gods of the nations. They still do not want to follow the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their might. Why is it that they're this way? And when you think about it in the context of how Isaiah is writing, the northern tribes had been taken away by the Assyrians. God said to them, enough, you have sinned so much, and he takes them away by the great Assyrian people. The Assyrians, in their own arrogance, think that, well, we will defeat the Judean people as well. And if you look at um, chapters 36, really, to 39 of Isaiah, we see um, Shennacherib, the great leader of the Assyrians at that time. He attempts to come upon Judah, and even he comes upon the great city, Jerusalem. But God had made a promise that he would protect that city. And what does he do? He wipes out the Assyrians. As a matter of fact, he, he so utterly wipes them out that they are utterly embarrassed because here is Shennacherib, and the scripture would tell us that Shennacherib would go, and not only the scripture is telling us, but history would tell us that he was going from city to city, even in Jerusalem, defeating them. And then he comes to Jerusalem uh, with the intention that Jerusalem was going to fall as well. But uh, Isaiah sends word to Hezekiah that indeed God's promises will be true. This city will not fall. And then what happens? Um, an angel of the Lord comes. An angel of the Lord in the night. And one angel slays 185,000 Assyrians. The Assyrians essentially leave Judah, and even according to God's word, um, that Shennacherib would be taken by the sword. And what happens, almost in a moment of irony, here is the Assyrians who are, who are trusting their God, thinking that somehow uh, their God is going to help them defeat even this great city of Jerusalem. And Shennacherib is so arrogant, he sends a letter by what is called the Rapshakah, and we aren't sure if it was a proper name. Was he actually called Rapshika? Or was Rapshika just another word to say he was a messenger? In one sense, unimportant. He takes the letter from Shennacherib and he comes and a part of the letter is communicating this. Have any of the gods of all the people been able to stop my master? And it was true, they hadn't. And he gives a list of all these other nations that had fallen to the, to the Assyrians. And essentially saying, none of the other gods have helped uh, them, none of the other gods have been able to defeat my great king, Shennacherib, and the Assyrians. Who is Yahweh? 
Who is Yahweh? He will fail as well. And if you um, just take a moment, if we look back, if you will, um, to Isaiah, look with me to Isaiah. I didn't get that. Could oh. you try again? Oh, my word. <laughs> Isaiah. <laughs> I keep telling myself whenever I preach on my iPad, I need to turn off Siri. And I always forget to do it when I go. And I say something that Siri thinks because they hear Assyrian and they hear Siri and they want to start giving me some information. Oh boy. I would throw it to the ground and break it, but I needed to preach. But so, <laughs> uh, so here we are. Notice this. If we go back to, I want to show you some highlights in this episode. And beginning in verse 36. Notice, I'm sorry, chapter 36. In chapter 36, and he says in verse 4, Then Rapticus said to them, See now Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. He says, What is this confidence that you have? I say your counsel and truthful were only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? And he says, Behold, you rely on the staff of the crushed reed, even Egypt. If a man leans, he's going to pierce his hand. So essentially, instead of trusting Yahweh, there were times when the people of God would have an alliance, a covenant with another nation. You protect us, we'll protect you. And he said, Why would you go to the Egyptians thinking that they could protect you? They're a weak nation. And he ridicules about saying it's like a reed or a staff or a walking cane. If you would lean on it, you would pierce your hand because it's, it's fibrous. It's not strong anymore. Why are you relying on them? And, but notice what he says in verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God. Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? So he says, don't trust God. Don't trust the, the Egyptians. And then notice what he says in verse 9. How then shall you report, repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And notice the arrogance in verse 9. He says, even the least of my master's servants can defeat the, the Egyptians. Why would you depend on them? And then he goes on to say, he is speaking now to the people of, of Judea. And he says in verse 14, notice what he says. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor, and this is the, the epitome of arrogance. Notice verse 15. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, saying Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And then he communicates in verse 18. Notice what he says there. Behold, I'm sorry, beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying Yahweh will, will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered this Land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Verse 19. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpah? Where are the gods of Seravim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Essentially saying, our track record is clear. And everyone would have known that the Assyrians were a fierce and mighty people. And what he's saying is that none of their gods was able to withstand us. And your God is really no different. Yahweh is not any different. How could Yahweh be different? 
We've taken away your northern brothers into captivity. Weren't they followers of Yahweh as well? So is there a Yahweh for Israel and a Yahweh for Judah? Are you proposing that the Yahweh for Judah is stronger than the Yahweh for Israel? And since they knew that it was the same God, he's saying, your God is no different than all these other weak gods of the nations. He will not be able to stand against us. What a frightening thing to say something like that about God. But he does. And that's why they pay the ultimate price. But I want you to see something that's so important. And when Hezekiah chapter 37 verse 1 heard it, he tore his clothes. He, he covered himself with sackcloth and ashes and entered the house of God. And he speaks to God about it. And then eventually, what does he do? Is he's praying to the Lord. We see that in verses 14 to 20 as he offers up this lofty prayer to God. And he begins even in verse Um, 16, if you notice it, in verse 15, he says, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts. And I can stop right there, because when he says, O Lord of hosts, what is he saying? You are the Lord of armies. We are in a battle right now. Will you come to our rescue? He has reproached you. And ultimately, Hezekiah is praying that God would be glorified. He has, in one sense, indicted you. He's questioned you. Fight for your name and fight for your people. And eventually, the Lord would. Because God comes on the scene at the end of it, and he says, I have heard these words that come from Shennacherib. And notice verse 29 of chapter 37. He says, because of your raging against me, and because of your arrogance, has come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put a hook in your nose and I will bridle in my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way in which you have come. And God did that. And eventually he would, if we look at the parallel account, he would, in the irony of it, that Shennacherib, when he would make his way back, he would actually go into the house of his God and what happened Two of his sons would come in and slay him in the house of his God. And isn't that ironic? Here it is that Hezekiah goes to the house of God, the house of Yahweh, and prays, and God hears, and God delivers. Then Shennacherib goes to the house of his God, and what, is he, what happens to him? He's assassinated. Here is Yahweh versus his false God. Here is Yahweh versus the gods of the land. So this great victory has been given to Judah. Now, why do I share all of that as the background? Because what is sad about it is this. Hezekiah does what? He um, hears about these Babylonians, and he brings them, he allows them to come to um, the temple, and he shows them all the riches of, of Judah. And he is rebuked for that, and he essentially says that all of this is going to be taken away. But why was it taken away? Think with me for a moment. Here are the Assyrians who have taken away the northern tribes. Judah is maintaining fidelity. Judah is maintaining the covenant at least temporarily. And you would think that they would learn. You would say, hold on. We should not commit the same sins as our northern brothers. Look what has happened to them. The Assyrians took them away. They were stricken. And they would also think that God delivered um, us from the Assyrians. God would deliver us from 
any power. Let us be faithful to Yahweh. But they weren't. Because in what happens years later, God says the Babylonians are going to take you away. So at the end of chapter 39, the Assyrians fade away, and now the Babylonians come. And it's why? Because they were unfaithful. No lesson learned. Years and years and decades and decades and decades to learn from the exile of their northern, their northern brothers, but they did not learn. They were unfaithful as well. And there's a a, a ready application for us in that. Because isn't it interesting in life, we can see someone make the same failure, the same mistake, and we don't what? We don't learn. Sometimes I see, as we were ministering to these hundred or so um, pastors in Zambia, and at times, one of my lessons, while I was talking about integrity from Colossians 3, um, 9 through 11, it says, and do not lie to one another. And how integrity is so necessary in ministry and how there have been certain ministers who they have been men who have fallen and disqualified themselves from ministry. And then why is it that some ministers look at that and observe it, but don't learn from it? And they repeat the same thing. And here is the northern tribes and Judah is looking at the northern tribes and they see that they have been taken away, but they don't learn from it. And so now, Hezekiah has given a word that they're going to be taken away. And notice what he says, and it's so interesting, Hezekiah's words, because if you notice chapter 39, verse 8, just notice that with me. He says, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. And essentially, he's told them in verses 5, if you will, through really 7, that everything is going to be taken away. The officials are going to be taken out of the palace. Nothing is going to be left. But he says, for he thought there will be peace and truth in my days. So essentially what Hezekiah is saying, Isaiah has prophesied that God is going to chasten Judah but it won't happen in Hezekiah's day, which was true. But think about that attitude. My people are going to be taken away. Nothing's going to be left. But at least in my days, I'll have a peaceful kingdom. Instead of falling, if you will, in sackcloth and ashes and saying, Lord, perhaps give us another chance, perhaps. But it doesn't happen. And none of the people learn from it as well. So now what takes place? Judah is taken away in captivity. Then in God, now, again, what we see here, we know this has taken place, but what does God say to the people of God? Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So eventually... Um, Judas taken away. And here it is. Isaiah is speaking prophetically to say comfort the people of God. Now we have to understand something. There is a, like a, a hundred year gap between what Isaiah is writing and then for it to actually take place. 
So the people of God would have been wondering as they are in captivity, when are we going to be free? We, we've heard this word that somehow one day we're going to be free. We've heard these words that someday one servant is going to come and he's going to take us away. When is that going to take place? And imagine that for all, that long period of time, wondering when are these words actually going to take place? So he says, these are words of comfort to my people. So the people of God would have to allow these words to sustain them while God is still, in one sense, chastening them. But the question comes up, just look at these words, comfort, oh comfort. Why this repetition? And it's just um, uh, a a stylistic um, approach for emphasis. If you remember um, in Genesis 22, God calls out and he says, Abraham, Abraham. Because now he has something to say to Abraham that, in fact, don't touch the, the lad. In 2 um, Samuel 18, um, Absalom has revolted against his father, David. And when Absalom is killed, uh, and I would say unwisely, um, David mourns his son too much. And he calls out, Absalom, oh Absalom. There's that sense of emphasis. And one of the greatest repetitions in all of Scripture is what we see in Psalm 22. And if we understand that from a messianic standpoint, and what are those dear words that are communicated? My God, my God. So the emphasis is here. And notice there is a tone of covenant in this. We might say if we were to give this section a heading, uh, really... Verse 1 is the command of comfort. So he commands that comfort be given to his people. Because he says, comfort, oh comfort my people. God is commanding that his people be comforted. And then he emphasizes this command by even repeating it so that the people of God might gain some encouragement. Now here, there is a tone of covenant. We talked about covenant earlier on. Look at verse 1. Notice what he says first, my people, that's the tone of covenant. And then he says, says your God. We see similar language in Leviticus 26. My people says your God. It is personal. It is covenantal. I am your God. You are my people. Now, initially, you would think, God, disown them. They have been absolutely unfaithful. They didn't even learn from the example of their northern brothers. God, start again. And you remember, uh, if you will, the people in the Exodus, and they were stubborn then. You remember as they were showing their stubbornness, God said that he would wipe them out and they would, he would start a new nation and Moses could be the leader of that new nation. And what did God do? Uh, or what did Moses do? He beseeched God on behalf of the people. And God showed his graciousness. Toward them. Um, These people are now in captivity and they would be following the deities of the land and trusting in them. And here's the reason that God has to comfort them because they would think, well, maybe Yahweh, and we'll see some of this develop later on, maybe Yahweh is a local God. So now that we're in captivity, maybe Yahweh cannot extend his hand into the Babylonian kingdom and bring us back again. Maybe he cannot deliver us from afar. 
just like these other deities are, are localized deities, maybe Yahweh is the same way. But no, He is not. He is a covenant-keeping God that is incomparable. No God is like Him. So the question would be, can He deliver? Of course He can deliver. God is able and willing. And what we need to understand is both of those are true. Because the people of God would have been potentially confused. Some who have been influenced by these false um, deities of the land, well, is he any different than these false deities? Is he able? We're not sure. Maybe the gods of Babylon are greater than Yahweh. Maybe he cannot overcome these gods. Maybe that's the reason we are still here in exile. Then the other question would have come up, even if they wrestled through that theologically, even if they reminded themselves that no, Yahweh is distinct and he is the great I am God. He is the God that is, he is the one who delivered us from Egypt. He is the, is the God that delivered us from other nations. Even if they wrestled through that, then they would have to say, but maybe he's not willing. Yes, he's, he's able to do it, but maybe he doesn't want to. Maybe we've just been so unfaithful that he's saying, enough is enough. I'm done with you. But it isn't that. God says, speak to my people, comfort. Comfort my people. You don't deserve it. But he says, I am a covenant-keeping God. I want to comfort them. But the question is this. What is the message of comfort? The, the command of comfort is, is clear. What is the message of comfort in verse 2? So what are they to say? Notice verse 2. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. And this is in one sense perhaps unexpected because you might think, well, speak harshly to them, rebuke them. Let them know that they have sinned. Let them know that they should have not followed the course of their northern brothers. Let them know that I have been a covenant-keeping God and they've committed covenant treachery. Remind them of all of their sins. It's not that. He says, speak kindly to them. And this tells us something even about uh, the graciousness of God. Um, when a person in here, the people of God, are undeserving and a rebuke is absolutely in order, he says, I have kind words to speak to you. And what are those kind words? And he says, and call out to her, it really comes in three parts. There are three parts to God's kind words. And what are they? He says that her warfare is ended. What does that mean? Well, it's obvious that it had ended because they had been taken away in captivity. And the Babylonians, in one sense, they didn't put up much of a fight. And it had been over for a long time. And what he's saying is that I believe that this time of fighting, uh, even within yourselves and against the nations, that's over with. And then he says the second part of comfort is this, that her iniquity has been removed. Now some people... Uh, as they try to understand this, what does it mean that her iniquity has been removed? Um, have they atoned for themselves? Um, they've been away long enough and now they paid the price for their sins. I, I think we understand it when we look at the third uh, part of this verse. And he says that she has received doubled of, of the Lord's hand for her sins. What does that mean? I think the easiest way to understand it, and I think it is the accurate way to understand it, obviously, is that the time for you to be chastened is over. You have spent your time in exile. And now I'm going to show you grace by bringing you out again. 
And it has nothing to do with you because you still remain a confused people in one sense. But I'm going to demonstrate that I'm a God that loves to forgive. And I'm a God that will keep my covenant with you. So now it's appropriate that you come back again. And what I believe God is also doing, the way that God is going to bring the people out of exile is also a testimony of his greatness. Because remember, the Babylonians are the great power of that day. But yet God, because he's the one that controls the nations, is creating another power that's going to come. And that other power would be <clears throat> the Persians would come and they would defeat the Babylonians. Because God, even as we were singing earlier, that all the nations must come before our God, God is the one that controls every nation, does he not? Every circumstance in life. And so think about it for a moment. At one point in time, God did what? He raised up the Assyrians. And in part, God raised up the Assyrians to punish his people. Then he says, time is enough. You'll be released. And then God raises up the Babylonians and they will be taken away. And he would say, time is enough. You'll be released. And then God raises up uh, the Persians and they're raised up. And then God would say, time is enough. Then they will be released. He controls every nation. And if you continue with that, then God does what? He raises up the Greeks and they would be a world power for a period of time. And then he says, enough then they're gone. And then what does God do? He raises up the Romans. And they were around even during the time of Christ. And he says, enough. I, um, I think it was our, it was our 10th anniversary. Uh, my wife and I, and there was a friend of us that says, hey, you should go somewhere for your 10th. And I said, well, our bank account doesn't allow us to go very far. So he says, no, I think you should. Here is something. And we ended up going to, um, to the Mediterranean. And a part of the stop, we were in Rome. And it was wonderful going through Rome and, and you going to um, one of the, the Colosseum there was just a, a marvelous thing to see. And I was conflicted by it because um, it's obviously there's a wonder to it, even the construction behind it. And as people were taking pictures and I just didn't feel like I, I didn't feel the same way about it. And I didn't feel the same way about it because I knew so many of my prior brothers and sisters died there. I know many of them were let out and they would let wild beasts on them or gladiators would kill them. And I just thought, that's different for me. I can stand in front of Table Mountain and take some pictures. That's wonderful. But um, standing in front of the Colosseum... Which I did take one, but I didn't take a whole lot. I just, I felt differently about it. Then even with that, God says, yes, there's a moment for you. You will kill many of my people. You will slaughter them. But he says, enough of you. Because God controls the nations, does he not? And so God is saying, yes, I have raised up Babylon to chasten you. But now that chastening is over. I'm going to raise up Cyrus and he's going to come and he's going to release you and he's going to allow you to go back and he's going to allow you to rebuild. He is my servant. I will use him. So he says, here are the words of comfort for you. You've paid double for your sins. And it's simply a way of saying it's satisfied. Comfort is an important thing, isn't it? Um, because when the heart can become troubled, we need to have a sense of 
comfort, do we not? Let me illustrate it this way. Um, it's been many years ago now. In my family, I, I grew up in the southern part of, the, of America, and um, my grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side, um, they were like sweethearts since they were like in their teens and got married very early and spent nearly 70 years together. It's a long time. And if you calculate the years that they knew one another, I'm not exactly sure what the number is, actually, 70 years ago. And I'll never forget the time when my grandfather died, and he was about 85 when he passed away. And uh, all the siblings came together, and we asked ourselves the question, what do we do for, for our grandmother, and how do we care for her? And you could just see the difference in her. He could see the difference, and it's like a part of her had left. And um, when you've been together with someone for at least 70 years with one another, and I remember, I have fond memories of them going over and her cooking meals for me and my grandfather who worked in landscaping, and that was, he did landscaping before you had electrical tools. I mean, he did it all with just the shears, and he could make things that were, were unbelievable. And... Um, loved one another, and he was gone. And we care for her. You know what? She never recovered. And a year later, she passed into eternity. She went into heaven. She couldn't be comforted. I mean, here it was. Her grandchildren were around, taking care of her, speaking about, and we called my grandfather Daddy Rich, was his name. Daddy Rich for Richard Danner. It seems as if the only thing that was going to comfort her was heaven. And the Lord said, almost he was saying, we were trying to say, comfort, oh comfort, be comforted, Grandma. And the Lord seemed to say, no, heaven is your best comfort. And she was taken to heaven. The heart can be broken. It can be saddened. The people of God, the thing about them, they aren't really broken yet. But God still speaks kindly to them and speaks words of comfort to them. And that says a lot about our God. That we don't have to perform for him to say, now I'll comfort you because you performed. We don't have to have everything in life together before he says, now I'm going to rescue you. Because if that were the case, we wouldn't need rescuing, would we? No, not at all. So he comforts. So here's the question for us. In light of this, how do we know that God is going to keep this promise? How do we know that he can, in fact, keep this promise? Let's continue to work through the rest of this text to finish this message, if you will. How do we know this? How do we know that God is a, a faithful God in this way? Well, if you will, look with me at verses 3 to 5. In verses 3 to 5, we see here, that we know that God is going to comfort his people because a servant is coming. A servant is coming. We see that in verses 3 to 5. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And 
we see this idea of valleys being lifted up and mountains being made low and rough places a plain. And the rugged terrain is going to be a broad valley. Then in verse 5, then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Now the question is, when was this fulfilled? Now we know Christ would in fact be that one that would come and we would see his glory and all flesh would see his glory. But I believe that it is also communicating that God is going to use his servant Cyrus to come and that would be a manifestation of the glory of God. Because as we think about the glory of God, it's just another way of saying God is manifesting his greatness and seeing his glory. And God would show his glory through Cyrus. You say, wait a minute. Why would God show his glory through Cyrus? Cyrus is a Persian. How is that connected? Well, let me tell you how it's connected. Because again, it is a statement that God is saying he controls every man. Some men may not recognize him, but God is still the sovereign creator over every man. And God is saying that I will use Cyrus for my purposes. Cyrus will come in and wipe out this great Babylonian kingdom. Cyrus would allow his people to go back and to worship. Because God revealed his glory through his absolute control over all things. So the question comes up when it talks about this valleys being made low and mountains um, or valleys that are going to be lifted up and mountains being made low, did that actually take place? Well, we know that didn't even that didn't take place when Christ came. So it's just an image of saying a road is going to be made for God's will to be fulfilled. So they can be assured I am going to send a servant to you. And we'll see, you would see later on, if you were to look at chapter 41 and 42, that in fact, Cyrus would be a partial fulfillment of this truth. Then what else do we see from this text? It assures us that in fact, God is on their side. In verses 6 through 11, that God is coming to help. How do we know that they can be comforted? How do we know that God's promises are true? God is going to come and help. Notice it says in verse 6, a voice calls out, call out. Then he answered, what should I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. And as we read earlier, notice what it says. The grass withers, the flower fades. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Where is the, the confidence in these verses? Here is the confidence in it. This is what Isaiah is saying. Don't trust in man. Man is not capable of being your deliverer. Don't trust in him. He is not like Yahweh. Where does this come out? Notice what he says in verse 6. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. What does that mean? Well, some of it's obvious. Um, Right now for us in Southern California, uh, where I'm from, We are in the heat of summer. Uh, We are in the heat of summer. And everything, as I see, you're you're remembering the days in Southern California now. Uh, Everything right now in Southern California is brown and it's dried up. And all the things that sprang up for a period of time that for a moment were green and flowers that were budding, it's all dried up and it's all withered. So it was beautiful being here as I was riding from where we were near the waterfront 
and seeing all the green and things were lush and it was wonderful. And I'm thinking, this is a beautiful setting. But I'm reminded of being in Southern California where things come up for a moment and then it's gone. It's almost as if it were never there. And he's saying mankind is that way when it comes to him being faithful. You say, wait a minute, where do you get that from? Notice verse 6. Verse 6, it says, in all its loveliness. Now, the New American says loveliness. And really, a better translation of that is to say all of its constancy, all of its consistency is the better translation. And even if you have a Bible, it may say that in the margin. So what's the point? You remember we talked earlier in our class about God's unbreachable covenant. It is consistent. It's unwavering. God is a God also in his character. He is immutable. It is unchanging. And what he's saying, man is not that way. His loveliness, and the NASB chose to, to translate it loveliness probably to complement the, the, the sense of grass and flowers, but it could have just been consistency. He grows up, he says he's going to be faithful, then it fades away. So why would you trust man and not trust Yahweh? Trust the God who's been faithful. Trust the God who is absolutely reliable. And then he states his faithfulness again. Notice verse 8. So the grass withers, the flower fades, but in contrast, the word of our God stands for how long? How long does it stand? Forever. Trust it. I will comfort you. I will comfort you. Yes, you don't deserve it. When have you ever deserved it? When have you ever deserved it, would be the question. I don't provide grace because you deserve grace. I give grace because you're undeserving. I show mercy not because you deserve mercy. I show mercy because I have pity on you. And this is the character of God. So they can rest assured that they will be comforted because God is saying, I will comfort you. If we go back to verse 1, what does it say? Comfort or comfort my people, says your God. It is God who is speaking, therefore God's word will be true. And for us today, we, we take this text from words that were written uh, in an ancient culture and we bring them into 2022, and God's word is still lasting forever today, is it not? Can we still trust it today? Has it changed? No, it has not. Is God still reliable? Is he not? Absolutely he is. So this is relevant for us today. This is not just a historical biblical lesson. This is a testimony of God's God's greatness and his faithfulness to his covenant people. And are we not his New Testament covenant people? Indeed we are. Then he says, you should cry out good news. Notice verse 9. God is coming to help. How do we know? He says in verse 9, don't fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. But wait a minute, you told me a moment ago, Cyrus is the one that's going to come and deliver. Exactly. God is saying, I'm going to use Cyrus, and when he comes, it's a statement to say, here is your God delivering you. I want you to see something that's really beautiful. Notice verses 10 and 11. This is a testimony about God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend, he will gather, 
He will carry. He will gently lead. Notice this contrast. Verse 10, Behold, your Lord Yahweh God will come with might. But then he says in verse 11, This same God who comes with might will also do what? He will come with might because he would destroy the Babylonians, but he would do what? He would tenderly care for his people. So this same arm that comes with might like a warrior is also the same arm that tenderly cares for his people. What a beautiful picture of our God. Um, it was mentioned earlier that uh, married and we have five children, but they're all adult ages now and have moved on in life or moving in life, if you will. And um, uh, an image that always comes up in times like that's when I think about the sense of having might, but also having tenderness is holding and caring for my kids. And uh, two of my kids are twin twins um, and both tough have turned out to be tough, noble, respectable men. Um, both are uh, Marine infantry officers, so they can take care of themselves right now. They could take care of me, actually, right now. And both are actually taller than me right now. I don't know when that happened, but I think it's coming right here. So <laughs> prepare for it. <laughs> I remember the time when I was in my house and I saw one of my sons walk by me and I thought, wait a minute, what's happening here? And, I, and literally I did. I said, come here. And we got in the mirror and I looked at him and says, oh my. And this was at 12. He was the same height. And so he's past me now. But they're grown adult men now. Um, but when I was, when they were small, I would hold them like two rugby balls, like this. <laughs> kind of like I was getting ready to be a spring buck or something, you know? <laughs> See if we can defeat whales. <laughs> right? <laughs> but then they've since grown up. But also, when I held them that way, and my other kids as well, I held all of them tenderly. And I watched over them. And there were times in our neighborhood we would go for a walk. And, and my kids always knew when we went for a walk that dad would always walk on the outside. If that was the street, I would be here. Then we went to the other side. If that was the street, I would be there. I would always be closest to the street. And one day one of them asked me. They said, well, dad, why do you always tell us, and like mom, you always tell mom to get on the other side. Or us to get on the other side. I said, well, think about it a little bit. And he thought, and you could see the little mind was rolling. And he said, in case bad guys come, you'll get them. <laughs> You're exactly right. So in case the bad guys come, instead of it being tender, it will be might. Might. Don't touch my family. But to my family, tenderness. God says, I'm going to come with might. Cyrus will be my servant. The Babylonians, the gods of the Babylonians, who are they? I am Yahweh, the Lord God, the creator of all things. I will come with might and I will deliver you, although you do not deserve it, because I'm also God of graciousness and mercy and patience and everlasting loving kindness. And then when I come with might, what will I do with you? I will tenderly gather you. I'm going to have you go back to your home. And Cyrus is going to send you with everything that you need to rebuild. That's the sort of God that he is. He is coming to help. I'll take a few more minutes and I'll have to edit in my mind right now. 
How else do we know that God is going to come for his people? Verses 12 to 17, because God is great. God is going to keep his promises uh, because he, a servant is coming. He's going to keep the promise because he is coming to help. God is going to keep the promise because God is great. How do we know God is great? He tells us in verses 12 to 17, and of course other places as well. How do we know it? Listen to the images. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Have the gods of Babylonians, the Babylonians done it? No. Have the gods of the Assyrians done it? No. Obviously the gods of the Assyrians haven't done it, because here was Shennacherib in his own place of worship. He was murdered there. And it was because I said he would be murdered there. No. I don't care if the gods of Hamath or Arphad, Aser, Vam, fail to the Assyrians. I will protect you and I will deliver you. Who is marked up the heavens by the span? Who has done this? No one. He says in verse 15, the nations are dropped from the bucket. And I think we all get that image of what a drop from a bucket not just the water in the bucket, but the drop from a water in the bucket, what that represents, nothing. Verse 17, to him they're less than nothing and meaningless. I often think about that when I travel. I mean, when I was coming back to Africa, I was in Hawaii and I had to fly five hours to California, then wait. Then it was five hours to New York, then wait. Then it was 15 hours to Johannesburg, that's a long time um, to get on the other side of the world. Now, it was literally, and I didn't think about it, but someone brought it to my attention. When I was in Hawaii um, and South Africa was absolute opposites of one another, if you look at the globe. So I could have gone the other way. I could have gone by way of Asia, but I went the other direction. But it took all of that time to get to the other side of the globe. And God is saying, Earth? God is saying Saturn, Pluto, Jupiter, and that's just in our solar system. This galaxy, this universe is nothing. I created it all. And you want to doubt whether or not I can deliver you from one nation? You want to doubt that I can provide for your needs when I am the one that created all things? I am more than able and am also willing because the two must come together. A person may have the ability to do something, but not be willing to do it, correct? Or a person can even have the ability to do something, um, be perhaps willing, but decide, no, I don't think that I will. It is true for God in every measure here. And then, let's finish up. How do we know that God is great? Well, we see it here, because also um, in verses 18 to 20, I am the one that's going to comfort you, not these other gods, because the idols are nothing. We see that in verses 18 to 20. And I just highlight one thought from it, where he essentially says, to whom will you liken me? And what likeness will you compare with me? And he talks about idols, and essentially says someone creates an idol, and they have to put nails in it so it doesn't fall over. It's utterly ridiculous. That's essentially what he's saying. Will you liken me to the gods of the Babylonians? Are you doubting that maybe I can't deliver you because you think the gods of the Babylonians are like me? It is utterly ridiculous. These gods are created by the work of men's hands. I am the one, remember, the work of men's hands. He says, what have, what have my hands done? They've marked out the heavens. It is beautiful coming 
I went for a really early run. I do always on Sundays, and I kind of broadcast on Facebook what I'm talking about. And um, where I was, because it was still pretty, it was early in the morning, I couldn't see much around me. But when we got in the car and started to drive, I could see Table Mountain. There it was. But it was there the whole time. I just couldn't see it. And Stephen had asked me had I been before. I said about three times. I've, once I could get to the top, and it was just gorgeous. Another time, climbed a portion of it. I did say a portion. And, <laughs> and the third time I went up, I got it to the top, and I couldn't see anything. You know, the clouds come in. And you think about that, Table Mountain. But God says, that's a pebble. It's nothing to me. And you're going to worship a God that takes a nail to keep it in place? No. Then how does he finish up? God is going to keep his promises because verses 21 to 27, he is a creator God. Highlights for you. What does he say? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? And what, what he's trying to say here, you've been taught this. The prophets have said this. Don't you know this to be true? Remind yourself of it. I'm the one that sits at, above the circle of the earth. I'm, I'm saying you're reminding you of how I had to fly from Hawaii to um, you know, Johannesburg, and it took me how many hours to get there? I'm above the circle of the earth. I stretch out the heavens like a curtain in verse 22. I reduce rulers to nothing, which he's going to do to the Babylonians. I am the one. But what you should see is verse 26. Notice it. Notice the latter part of verse 26. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Those are comforting words. Why, why are those comforting words? If I created all the heavens, if I created every star that exists, and when you look into the heavens and you see every star and not one of them is missing, do you think I'm not capable of delivering every one of you? Of course I am. And then it finishes. God helps those who wait. 27 to 31. And I'll just highlight. He says in verse 30, the vigorous man stumbles badly. And the word is that it's it's constructed in the Hebrew language to say it's sort of it's an absolute sense in which they are they're stumbling over themselves. They to the point of exhaustion. But yet, if you wait for the Lord. There's new strength. You will run and not be tired. You will walk and not become weary. So you have to wait. They would have to wait decade after decade after decade after decade. But he says, if you wait on me, I'll strengthen you. It's interesting how in the Christian life that can be one of the most difficult things to do, can't it? <laughs> it's to wait on the Lord. We would say, God, I know you're faithful. I know you love me. And we can list any number of other attributes about God. But then to wait on him, it can test us. But that is a part of the Christian life. Then we have to remind ourselves that God is faithful. If I wait on him, he will in fact deliver. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for these words you've given us. And pray that they would encourage our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.